Amen. Behold our God, there is none like Him, the Scriptures say. If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to open up this morning to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 18. Gospel of Luke chapter 18 as we continue in our series on the parables of Jesus. While you're turning there, I was... I heard a story this week about a kindergarten teacher who decided to give her class a show-and-tell assignment in which she asked them to bring something to class that represented their religious beliefs. So the first child was a little boy named Benjamin who got up and he said, well, my family is Jewish and this is a star of David. And he began to explain to them about how that symbolized their Jewish heritage. The second child got up and it was a little girl by the name of Mary, and she said, my family is Catholic, and I brought with me today a rosary. We use this in the Catholic Church when we pray. Finally, the third child got up. His name was William, and William got up and said, well, my family is Baptist, and so today I brought with me a casserole. (laughs) Very appropriate, I think. Well, it's been awesome so far as we've been looking through our summer series on the parables of Jesus. We've, we've actually encountered five parables so far. We've, we've looked at some very familiar parables and some maybe not quite as familiar. And we've seen several important truths. For instance, the first week we looked at the parable of the soils. And we said that the main point of that parable is that the most important ingredient which determines your receptivity to the Word of God is the condition of your heart. And so that we need to be good soil that's ready to receive the Word of God. It's one of those prayers that I have for myself as well as for us as a church every single week. God, may you find good soil here this morning. second parable we looked at just followed that. And it's called the parable of the weeds in which a sower went out to sow and an enemy came and sowed weeds in his field. And and, and he directed the, the men to not pull those weeds up but to wait until the harvest to separate the weeds from the wheat. And we said that the main point of that parable is that despite the enemy's attempts to pollute and destroy it, the kingdom of God continues to march on and advance to victory. That Satan will do many things to try to disrupt and destroy the church and the kingdom of God, but in spite of all that, it continues to move forward. A few weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the vineyard workers in which a A vineyard owner went out and hired workers throughout the day and he hired some at the first hour and some at the third and some at the sixth and some at the ninth and some at the last hour. And we said that the main point of that parable is that no matter when you come or how much you have done, all enter the kingdom of God solely on the basis of grace and grace alone. That every single one of those workers came into the kingdom for the, for the same reason or by the same avenue, and that was the grace of the master. And it didn't matter whether you were hired in the first of the day or at the end of the day, everybody receives grace. Then we looked a few weeks ago at the parable of the prodigal son, or really the parable of the lost sons and a loving father in which we saw that the Father in that parable represents God, and God is a merciful, patient, and tender God who never stops looking for the lost and always rejoices when He sees true repentance. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a parable, which really two parables, the parable of a a man who was building a tower and a king who went out to war, in which we said that Jesus was telling those people there that determining to follow Him is a weighty decision which requires careful inspection, personal sacrifice, and total allegiance. 
So we've looked at five parables so far. Today in Luke chapter 18, we're going to look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collectors. Now, I want to review this fact, and that is that this, we said this at the beginning of the series, when Jesus told parables, he told them to a specific group of people in a specific context for a specific purpose. And so for this reason, all parables in the Bible have one primary purpose of truth that Jesus is trying to communicate. So any parable you come to, the context helps you to understand this is the primary purpose that Jesus was trying to communicate to that specific group of people in that specific context. A parable does not mean something different to us in our time and in our culture than it did in the time that Jesus spoke it. And what we determine out of a parable today does not conflict with what it meant to the people that Jesus spoke it to. The context of the parable helps us to understand the meaning and the purpose of it. But, as we've said, while every parable has one main truth that Jesus is trying to teach, they have multiple principles and points of application that we can draw from. As long as the principles and the applications that we draw do not conflict with the original meaning of the parable. This is a danger in our day and time when we, we live in a time where, where what has been written necessarily in, a, in, a, in a, the Bible or even in a, in a historical book, we live in a time in which the interpretation is more open to the reader than it is the person who wrote it. And so what happens a lot of times is we read a book or we read a passage of Scripture and then we talk about what this passage means to me or what I got out of this passage or, or what I feel like God is saying to me in this passage. And it's important to get personal application from the Word of God. But it's important to understand what God meant when He wrote it and get your personal application from that. Because if you're not careful, you can begin to interpret things out of Scripture that were never intended to be. Today we're going to look at a, a parable that's a very familiar one about a pious religious leader and a not-so-pious tax collector. And while this is a familiar story in the Bible, many people confuse this parable to be a parable about praying and how to pray. Specifically, it does speak about prayer, and it does follow a parable that Jesus told just prior to that about prayer. He told about the, the prayer of a persistent widow. But this is not just a parable about prayer. As a matter of fact, it goes much deeper than that. It's a parable about salvation. And specifically, it's a parable designed by Jesus to answer this question. How is someone justified or made right before a holy God? That's the question that Jesus is, is helping to resolve in the parable today. And so I want us to read the parable, and then we'll start to break it down to understand it a little bit better. I want us to start in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. We're going to read the first verse and stop for a second because this helps us to understand the context. Luke 18, 9 says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now stop there because that helps us to understand what Jesus is about to say. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that Jesus, the Son of God, has incredibly deep spiritual perception into the hearts of people. 
Jesus understands what's going on inside of people. He understands what's going on inside of their hearts. He understands of all the people that are following him. Some of those are genuine seekers. Some of those are these men who've, who've given up everything to follow him, those, those, those closest disciples. Some of the people that are following him are just people on the margins in the crowd who are, who are interested in the miracles and, and, and intrigued by the authority with which he's teaching but they're not necessarily all sold out to him as the Son of God. Some of the people that are following him or that are around are Pharisees and religious leaders who, who are very weary of him and, and are wanting to figure out a way to trap him. Jesus has incredibly deep spiritual perception into the hearts of every person, including every person here. We just said that a second ago when we sang that he knows my name and he knows my thoughts, he knows my heart, he knows everything about me. And Jesus knows what's, what's happening is that one of the greatest problems in the human heart is the dangerous capacity that we have for self-righteousness and self-deception about our own personal goodness. One of the greatest dangers of the human heart is self-deception and the dangerous capacity that you and I have to tout our own personal goodness. Now some people think that Jesus directs this parable to the Pharisees because he speaks about a Pharisee in the parable. But the immediate context doesn't tell us that. There's no mention about him speaking to the Pharisees. There's no mention about the Pharisees being in the crowd. What he's speaking about is that, that there's a, a truth that every human heart, not just those of hypocritical religious people, every human heart is in danger of self-deception about our own personal righteousness and our own need for God's mercy. You see, the fallen human heart has a great propensity to ignore our need for grace and to trust in our own righteous acts to justify us. Every human heart has that propensity. Every human heart has this, this tension to ignore the fact that every single person in this place today stands here in need of the grace of God today. And instead, we have this tendency to walk in and... and for many of us, we've been Christians for so long, we don't even recognize what happens. We, we get out of the car, and the moment we get out of the car, we put on the, the church mask, right? We put on the church mask, and we, we hide what we're really struggling with in our hearts, and we don't really want to talk about what, what's going on, and we don't really want to deal with the, the sins that we've committed this week. We just kind of come in, and we put on the mask, and we play church, and we shake hands, and we greet one another, and we sing songs, and we tolerate a long sermon, and we go out to eat lunch and repeat it all over again the next week. And in the meantime, what we tend to do is we tend to ignore the fact that we are here today, every person in need of the grace of God. And what we tend to do is we come into church and we tend to, we tend to sit and stand in our own self-righteousness and our own goodness and thinking, well, I'm here at church today and, and I know God's pleased with me for that. I, I've been a good person this week and I've done some good things and I've been very kind to people and I've, I've had a good attitude at work and... I haven't, I haven't said things that I shouldn't say. And we tend to trust in our own righteous acts to justify us before a holy God. And what happens when we do that is we consequently begin to look down on others that we don't view as righteous as us. We tend to look down our nose and, and, and say, well, that person, that person needs God a whole lot more than I do. This takes place every day in churches and schools and offices around the world. 
We see it in the political arena where politicians and their minions look contemptuously at people on the other side of the aisle while smugly touting their own self-righteous goodness of their cause. We see it in churches which erect invisible walls of self-righteousness designed to keep the people inside proud of their religious works while keeping those walls insulating them from the very people outside of the walls of the church that need to hear the gospel. Jesus understands that there is a great tendency in each of us to trust in ourselves that we are righteous because of our good behavior and as a result to treat others with contempt. I was telling the group that prayed with me this morning that one of the things I recognize every single time I come to this parable is that when I first came to Jesus, I came like the tax collector, but the longer I've been a Christian, the more I look like the Pharisee. And so he tells the story. Let's continue. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. A very short parable, one many of us are familiar with, and a story that is pretty easy to break down. Jesus tells a story of two men who went to the very same temple on the very same day to do the very same thing, which was to pray to God. But while these two men went to the same place for the same purpose, they had two completely different experiences in prayer, which resulted in two vastly different outcomes. Let's think first about the Pharisee. For the Pharisee, this was a a daily experience going to the temple to pray. The Pharisees often get a bad reputation in in our day and time because Jesus spoke very harshly to many of the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs that looked good on the outside but were full of dead bones inside of them. And many of the Pharisees openly opposed Jesus. But the Pharisees were also very righteous men in their day. And, And many of the Pharisees were very good men. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who came to Jesus inquiring more about him and whether he was the Son of God and eventually became a follower of him. Paul was a zealous Pharisee and even said in the book of Philippians that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was extremely devout to the cause. Pharisees were men who were the most highly regarded religious people because they were very knowledgeable about God's Word and very knowledgeable about the law. They knew every single thing that was allowed according to God's word or according to the interpretation of the law. And many of the Pharisees maintained very strict religious practices. As this man even said there, he he gives a 10% of all that he had. That was very common for Pharisees to do that. Even Jesus commended the Pharisees because he said, "You, you tithe all the way down to the smallest herbs that you pick out of your garden. He commended them for that, but then he criticized them because he said, while you're so diligent to to do that, you neglect, neglect the weightier matters of the law. 
And like most Pharisees, this man probably went to the temple to pray at least twice a day every day. It was a regular part of his routine. Every day at 9 a.m. and every afternoon at 3 p.m., this Pharisee would make his way to the temple and he would stand in the temple and he would pray out loud because that's what he did. He was very devoted to his religious practice and his devotion to God. Public prayer and religious devotion were a daily part of his life and every moment of every day of his life revolved around frantically keeping the law of God. But then we meet a tax collector. The tax collector's life was very different Tax collectors, as some of you may know, were some of the most despised people in Jewish society. They were considered the lowest class of sinners. They were even not even included in the regular list of sinners. The Bible says that Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. They were their own separate group of despised people. Why? Well, to begin with, tax collectors were seen as traitors and extortionists to the Jewish people. They were Jews who were hired by the nation of Rome to to collect and exact taxes to pay for the Roman occupation there in Jerusalem. And so tax collectors were were not forced to do this. They were not compelled by the Roman government to do it. It was was something that they saw as an opportunity to, to profit from. And so they profited from from basically collecting the taxes of their own people to fund the very army that occupied their nation. So they were despised for that reason, but even beyond that, they were were allowed, as long as they were able to, to pay the taxes that Rome required, they were allowed to even charge more usury and line their own pockets, and so many of them became very wealthy as a as a part of their business. Being a tax collector might make you a social outcast in the Jewish society, but it would make you a very profitable wage in that day and time. And so in many ways, tax collectors were rightfully despised because their lives were marked by greed and corruption and extortion and being traitors. And so on the surface, the parable seems very simple when Jesus starts it. When he says that two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector, it seems very simple. A very religious, devoted man who spent his whole life serving God goes to the temple to pray. And at the same time, a greedy, corrupt, and self-centered man who seldom ever even thought about God or his fellow man goes to the temple to pray as well. It's almost like we see where this story is about to go until... Jesus pulls one of those Paul Harvey moments on us, right? And he tells us the rest of the story. One man is going to the temple to pray because he sincerely desires to connect with God and the other is doing it just to keep up with personal appearances. And one man's prayer resounds in the throne room of heaven while the other man's prayer bounces off the walls of the temple. And the twist in the story that Jesus gives us is that the one who prayed right wasn't the one that everyone was expecting. And this is where the parable goes from being a parable about prayer to being a parable about salvation and what makes us right with God. You see, Jesus tells us in verse 14, look at it again. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. That sentence helps us to understand what Jesus is trying to tell us in this parable. He's not trying to tell us about the right way to go to church and pray. And that's important because when we come to church and we we engage in our religious practices, we need to engage in our religious practices with humility. 
And we need to avoid pious self-righteousness in those practices. But the key to the parable is justification. The key to the parable is that one man who came into the temple that day left right with God and the other man left opposed to God. And it wasn't the ones you expected when they came in. Justification is the heart of the gospel because it answers the singular most important question which we asked a second ago. How can a guilty sinner be made right before a holy God? If you and I are guilty before God because of our sinful choices, if you and I have, have sinned against God, if we've spurned God's love, if we've rejected God's authority, if we've, if we've compromised God's law in order to do what we want to, and the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death, if every single person in this place has the same spiritual condition, which is that we are sinful and separated from God, then the most important question in life is, how can I, a guilty sinner, be made right before a holy God? God. And historically, there have been two approaches to answer that question. The first answer is, I am made right with God by my own good works. The second approach is, I'm made right with God by His grace alone in Jesus Christ. Those are the only two answers to that question. And one of those answers is the correct one, and the other is incorrect. And it's reflected in the parable that Jesus tells us here. You see, the key truth of this parable is simply this. We are never made righteous before God through our own merit, but solely by His grace and our humble admission of our need for His mercy. That's the whole point of the parable. We are never made right before God through our own merit, through our own works. There's no, there's no amount of virtuous and religious devotion that can make up for the depth of our sin. We are not made right before God through our own merit. We are solely made right with God by His grace and our humble admission of our need for His mercy. The Pharisee came to the temple that day trusting in his self-righteousness and believing that he was already justified before God because of the virtuous and religiously devoted life in which he lived. When he walked into the temple that day, he did not come to the temple to pray a prayer of justification. He came there that day self-justified, self-righteous. He was completely blind to the reality of his spiritual condition. The tax collector came to the temple that day completely aware of his vile sinfulness and seeking only one thing, the mercy of God. And here's where the parable applies. Every person that came into this place today came in as a Pharisee or a tax collector. You came into this place today confident about your own goodness and your own religious merit, or you came in this place today keenly aware that you are a sinful person in, need of a holy, in front of a holy God in need of immeasurable grace and mercy. The tax collector left the temple justified with God. The Pharisee left just as spiritually lost as when he entered. And this is the truth that is above all other truths that we must understand because the spiritual implications of them are deadly and eternal. We are never made right with God by the works of our own merit. The Bible declares that even our most righteous moments are but putrid, filthy, disgusting rags in the sight of God. 
and that no amount of good works or religious stuff can overcome the personal problem of our sin. Is God speaking to somebody? Got a little interference there? All right. No exhaustive list of good deeds can atone for those continual times in which we have ignored God's Word, rejected God's authority, and chosen what we want over what God has declared is good for us. We are not made right by our righteous works. We are only justified by His grace alone, through faith alone, and by our humble admission of our need for His mercy and intervention. So every time we gather together to sing as the people of God, our songs should resound with the gospel and we should sing over and over and over again to God about our need for His mercy and our gratitude for His grace. We're never made right with Him through our own merit, but solely by His grace and our humble admission of our need for mercy. Let me give you three kind of applicational takeaways, three Three things that we see in this text that kind of help us to apply this a little bit better. Number one, one of the greatest hindrances to genuine spiritual transformation is the snare of prideful self-righteousness. One of the greatest hindrances to ever experiencing genuine spiritual transformation, to genuinely be changed from the inside out, to be a new person as Paul calls it, to be crucified with Christ and to no longer live, but to have Christ lived in you. One of the greatest hindrances to that is pride in our own self-righteousness. We see this in the introduction that Jesus wanted to make an important point to those of us who have this tendency to trust in ourselves that we are righteous people. You see, we all have a broken spiritual compass. All of us are wired with the spiritual compass and it doesn't point to true north. It, for many of us, it continually points inward and tells us that at heart we are good people who deserve the love of God. And you see, when it comes to ourselves, we tend to elevate the goodness of our righteous works and we tend to minimize the reality of our unrighteous ones. Have you ever noticed that? We tend to elevate the goodness of our righteous deeds and we tend to minimize the reality of our unrighteous ones. We tend to talk about all the good things that we do and we tend to exalt them and when it comes to the sins in our heart, we tend to say, well, I wouldn't really call that sin or it really isn't that big a deal. We tend to minimize our unrighteous deeds. We have a tendency to cut ourselves some slack when it comes to the sinful choices that we make and we tend to puff our chest out at the good things that we have done. This is what the Pharisees did. They were known for minute devotion to certain aspects of the law that they knew that everyone was watching and measuring and keeping track of. And so they were, they were careful to keep the Sabbath and to know every single thing that you were allowed to do and not do on the Sabbath. They were careful to tie the tenth of everything. They, they fastidiously went to the temple for sacrifices and prayers because these were public acts of righteousness that were easy to measure and visible for all to see. But Jesus condemned them for the other aspects of the law, like advocating for justice for those who had been done wrong or taking care of the poor and the marginalized and the refugees in their midst. These were the things that the Pharisees neglected and Jesus condemned them for it. 
The, Pharisees, the Pharisee was a perfect example of personal piety and self-righteousness. He kept all the external measures of righteousness that society demanded of him. And when he went to the temple to pray that day, he wanted everyone to hear what he had to say because surely a man this righteous knows how to talk to God. When he went into the temple, he stood in the midst of the outer court where everyone could hear him. And the Bible says that he stood praying loudly and publicly over the crowd. And when you see his prayer, his prayer was a prayer of thanksgiving, but it was not a prayer of thanksgiving to God. It was a prayer of thanksgiving to himself. And he recounted his righteous deeds and thanked God that he wasn't a vile sinner like so many others that he encountered that day. You see, he didn't come to the temple to pray in order to seek the mercy of a holy God because the Pharisee didn't even see himself as a man in need of mercy. Why would he? Why would the Pharisee need mercy when he was such a righteous person? Why would he need to trust the righteousness of another when he could recount such an impressive list of his own righteousness? Because one of the greatest hindrances to experiencing gospel transformation is trusting in our own righteousness. Because self-righteousness will develop a pride that will blind you to your need for grace and mercy. This is the reason why, even as believers, we preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. Second takeaway is this. Self-righteousness will not only blind you to your need, but it will cause you to look in the wrong places and trust in the wrong sources for your justification. It will cause you to look in the wrong places and trust in the wrong sources for your justification. Look at verses 11 and 12. The Bible says the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see what he's doing here? He's, he's recounting his deeds and he's looking in the wrong place and trusting in the wrong source to justify himself. You see, one of the great tragedies of this parable that Jesus tells is that both the Pharisee and the tax collector could have left the temple that day completely right with God. It wasn't necessary that one of them was right and one of them left wrong. Both of them could have experienced the freedom of forgiveness and both of them could have experienced the blessing of mercy. But the Pharisee came to the temple that day with his eyes looking in the wrong places and consequently he never saw the grace of God. Have you ever lost something important to you and frantically began searching to try to find it only to discover that you were looking in the wrong place all along? Anybody ever had that happen before? A few years ago, my family and I went to Disney World. Uh, Josh had not been born yet. It was just the, the, the oldest three. And my youngest son, John David, was around four or five years old. And we were walking through Epcot. If you've ever been to Disney World, you know Epcot. We were walking through all the countries in Epcot. We'd made our way around and we're coming back through. And, and, and I needed to go to the restroom. And so I announced to my wife, I'm, I'm going to the bathroom. And, and there was a lot of crowd and I couldn't hear everything. And she said something to me, but I didn't hear her. And so I began to walk off. And as I walked off, I noticed that my oldest two sons, Nathan and Drew, were right behind me and they were coming to the restroom with me. I didn't notice that John David was also lagging behind. I didn't see him. 
she thought that he was with me. I thought that he was with her. And so we go to the restroom and, and, and my son Nathan says, where's John David? And I said, he's with your mom. He said, no, he's supposed to be with us. So I call my wife and I said, is John David with you? And she said, no, I thought he was with you. And I said, no, he's not with me. And so we began frantically looking for my four or five-year-old son, John David, in the middle of Disney World. And we were in the American exhibit, okay? So kind of right there in the center of that, of that world showcase. We were in America, and we were looking for him in America, but he wasn't in America. He was in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I got back to my wife and I said, okay, you take these two. I'm going that way, because all I could think was that was the way towards the bathroom. If he was following me, he probably kept going that way. And I began to walk and went through one country after another until I finally got to the Italy exhibit and saw John David standing there talking to a couple, and they were trying to help him figure out where he was supposed to be. But I was looking for my son, but I was looking for him in the wrong place. What happens sometimes is that many of us look for justification like the Pharisee, but the Pharisee wasn't looking to God in his prayer. He was looking at himself, and he was looking at everyone else around him. And so as he looked on his way around to the temple that morning, as he was preparing to go to the temple to pray, he didn't go there looking in his heart to see his own sinfulness and his need for grace and mercy. Instead, he looked around at his fellow man, and when he looked around at his fellow man, he saw some people who were extorting people and taking advantage of other people. He saw men who had cheated on their spouses. He saw prostitutes who sold themselves with no shame. He saw people that had destroyed their lives by their own foolish choices. And each and every step that he took towards the temple that day drove him further and further into his own selfish pride. There are two warnings that I see from this text that I would remind all of us about the danger to be a Pharisee. Two warnings. Number one, beware of the comparison game. Beware of the comparison game because all of us have the same danger as the Pharisee. We have a tendency to look around and to see others who have made much worse personal choices than we have and that causes us to feel good about ourselves. When we see the man who can't hold a job because of his poor work ethic, or the woman living in shame from her poor choices, or the drunk or the drug addict who lives for the next high. Each and every time we compare ourselves to them, we put another notch in the belt of our own self-righteousness. And the problem is, the comparison game, is that we always compare ourselves to people who are seemingly less righteous than we are. And the problem is that we don't compare ourselves to the one that really matters, and that is a holy God. The Pharisee never compared himself to the Lord. He only compared himself to those who he considered more immoral than himself. Not only do we need to be aware of the comparison game, but we need to be aware of the performance trap as well. Because the Pharisee not only had a problem when he compared himself to others, but also about what he thought would save him. He thought that righteousness and justification before God were a matter of personal performance. In his mind, the world was a stage and he was the central character. And what the Pharisee prayed actually was partially correct. He had done many righteous works throughout his life. He did fast twice a week and he was diligent to tithe of everything to God. He was devout in his adherence to the law and his devotion to worship in the temple. The problem is not what the Pharisee acknowledged. The problem was what the Pharisee didn't acknowledge. He didn't acknowledge his personal sins. He didn't acknowledge that his sinful choices had separated him from God. 
He didn't acknowledge that he stood before God as a sinner before a holy God and the rightful object of God's wrath. He never got that far because he was looking in the wrong places and trusting in the wrong sources to save him. And that's what happens with self-righteousness, which brings us to the third and final point, and that is simply this. The only path to salvation is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The only path to salvation is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 13 and 14. The Bible says the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted, ex- ex- exalted. In contrast to the Pharisee, the tax collector didn't see the other unrighteous people on the way to the temple that day. Something obviously dramatic had happened in his life. We're not really sure what it was, but something happened that caused him to seek to go to God's house this morning to seek the mercy of God. You see, God gave this man one of the greatest grace gifts that he could give any person, and that is this, the ability to see inside himself and to see the depth of his sin and its consequences between him and God. One of the greatest gifts that God could ever give you and me is the ability to see inside the depth of depravity of our own human heart and to see the reality of the depth of our sin and the consequences that it has between us and a holy God. Notice a couple of things about the tax collector's prayer. First of all, notice his posture. The Bible says the Pharisee stood in the center of the court and prayed loudly while the tax collector stood in the corner of the temple with his head bowed. He couldn't even look up to address God in prayer because of the shame of his sin. But not only do you notice his posture, but notice the simpleness of his prayer. Seven short, powerful words. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. No sophisticated elegance, just a simple prayer for mercy and a personal acknowledgement of sin. But when I was reading this passage this week, I circled those words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and I wrote out to the side, this is where real change begins. We can never experience the transforming freedom of forgiveness and grace until we first reach the point of praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This phrase, be merciful to me, is an interesting phrase. If you study it, it's a reference to the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. It's not just a plea of mercy, but a plea of mercy on the basis of what God has done. The the word, be merciful to me, is the noun form of the mercy seat which sat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of the temple. And what is the significance of the mercy seat? Well, if you know your Old Testament, each year when the priest would come to make sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, he would sacrifice an innocent lamb. And the blood of that innocent animal would be taken before the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God with His people. And there that blood of that innocent lamb that was shed would be sprinkled over the mercy seat over and over and over again. And as that blood was spilt out on the mercy seat, the sins of the people were atoned for, and God promised through that act to be merciful towards His people and to not hold their sins against them. That's what this man prayed. Be merciful to me. Be mercy seated towards me, a sinner. 
The atoning sacrifice by the blood of the innocent lamb brought God's mercy to his people instead of his righteous wrath on their sin. And this helps us to understand two very critical aspects of this idea of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Two big theological words I want to teach you this morning. Number one is the word expiation. The word expiation. Theologians use this word to describe the covering of our sin. This is what happens when the the priest would spill that blood over the mercy seat is that 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 blood would cover the mercy seat as a symbolic act of covering the sins of the people. When the blood of Jesus Christ was poured out on the cross, His sacrifice of blood was poured out to cover our sin. And expiation refers to what the sacrifice of Christ accomplished with regards to us as sinners and our guilt. Our sin was covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and the guilt of our sin was removed from us. That's expiation. But the Bible also talks about atonement being propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation means the appeasement of the wrath of God. While expiation refers to what Christ did in respect to sinners and our guilt, propitiation refers to what Christ did in regards to God. And this is important to understand because sin is an offense to a holy God which incurs upon it the wrath of God. Because sin is in direct contrast to the holiness of God, it must be punished with a penalty in proportion to its offense. God cannot simply overlook our sin. God cannot simply act as though we never did anything. God must punish sin with holy wrath because the justice of God demands that a departure from His Word is a sin which must be punished. And it is punished with wrath. This is why God told Adam, in the day he ate of the fruit, he would die. This is why the Bible tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. This is why God instituted a bloody sacrificial system where the only way that sins could be atoned for were by the bloody death of an innocent lamb. And every single time those lambs were slaughtered, they were pointing forward to a day when the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world would die on an old rugged cross. And when Christ went to the cross, it wasn't just to cover our sins with His blood, but it was to absorb God's holy wrath against our sin. This is why the cross is so violent. And this is why death on the cross was so public. You see, only the cross of Jesus Christ perfectly demonstrates both the depth of God's holy love towards His people and the justice of God's holy wrath against sin. And that is why the only path to salvation is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. A true understanding of the cross will always lead to a passionate plea for mercy. A true understanding of the cross will always lead to a passionate plea for mercy. You simply cannot see the Son of God bleeding on the cross to cover your sin and to absorb your wrath and not come out of that and pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You can't. You cannot see the sacrifice of God and somehow be satisfied that your personal goodness is good enough to save you. I would invite you this morning, church, Not to look to yourself, not to look to yourself in comparison to other people, not to to sit in this place today and say, well, you know what, when I I look around the world and 
and I see the fact that I love God and that I'm in church this morning and, and there are thousands of people that aren't in church. When I, when I see what's going on in our world, I feel pretty good about myself. No, don't, don't play the comparison game and don't fall for the performance trap. I invite you this morning to look to a hill far away where an old rugged cross, the symbol of suffering and shame. And invite you today to look to the cross of Jesus Christ and see the cross on which the Prince of Glory died and to know that while He died on that cross, He died so that His blood could cover your sin and so that He could absorb the wrath of God that you rightfully deserve. And that is the only way to salvation, is to trust in that to save you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In just a moment, we're going to sing a a song of response, a song of invitation. We want to give you the opportunity this morning to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Maybe this morning, as you look to the cross of Jesus, you recognize your own guilt and your own need for salvation. Maybe you realize this morning that you've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ, that you've been trusting in your goodness and your religiosity and, and all of your religious works to save you. I invite you this morning to to turn aside from that and to pray a simple prayer of the tax collector this morning. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you need to give your life to Jesus Christ today, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. You can come in just a moment as we sing. and We have some people that will go and talk to you and tell you how you can know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're not ready to walk down an aisle this morning in front of a bunch of people. Maybe instead you just want to have a private conversation. And After church, you can get me or one of our staff members and say, hey, can I talk to you for a second? We'd be glad to share with you how you can know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And may we all pray this morning to the Lord, God, be mercy seated towards me today. May your blood and your blood alone be the thing that I'm trusting in to save me today. Father in heaven, we thank you for this powerful story about two men that came to the temple to pray. Father, may we all leave here today with the prayer of the, fair, of the tax collector on our lips. God, may you be merciful to us as sinners. And may we trust in what Jesus Christ has done above all others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Sing this song of response and respond as the Lord leads you today.